Our scripture today is Romans 7, 18 to 25. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer who I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God but in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Catherine. Some of you may be asking a question. This morning's song seemed kind of heavy. A lot of contemplative words, a lot of things in there that maybe you're not used to. Maybe some of you just had a hard time singing it. And I want to say there's a reason for that. In order for us to understand the good news, we have to understand the bad news first, right? It's called the gospel. Uh, Gospel meaning good news, and that's what we call it, talking about our salvation in Jesus Christ. What that means, it's good news. It's not bad news, but if we understand good news, we have to hear it in light of what we've come from the bad news. There's a line in there that uh, we just read in the scripture. It says, wretched man that I am. I was watching the World Series this last week and uh, excited. Houston Astros won. That's who I wanted to win. But there was a theme, a thread that kind of ran through that World Series that was actually a little more interesting to me in some ways. Second game of the World Series, Astros were behind and began coming back. One of the members of the Astros, Yuli Gurriel, Gurriel, sorry, uh, made a... uh, we were moving ahead in the late innings, Astros were, and he made a racial gesture towards the pitcher of the Dodgers. Uh, in his excitement and all of his desire to win, uh, and it, it was very costly. Immediately afterwards, there were penalties, uh, the, the social media and media outlets were abuzz with what he had done publicly, uh, and... <clears throat> And yes, he would be fined, and it would cost him five-game suspension in the new year. But what was interesting to me was seeing that this happened at the very beginning. What was the rest of the series going to be like? And I really watched him, and I watched the news, and I kept asking, watching him be muted after the next few games, just seeing his demeanor low, even when the Astros seemed to be doing well. And as what I was wondering was what would happen when they got to L.A.? Because they did for two more games after this happened. And exactly what I thought happened. When Yuli stepped up to the plate, a ra- a, just a huge ring of booze comes down on him. For both games, actually. And through it, as you watch the media and, 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 and his teammates and others just talking about 
trying to cheer him up, trying to help him. You got on one side his teammates saying, hey, and even calling members of the other team, even the, 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 the manager of the Astros calling the manager of the Dodgers to express his lament, his sorrow, a lot of class and, and you know, a lot of things. And even the pitcher himself, you Darvish, handled it with such grace and class. And yet what was interesting to me was this thing. I saw t- a twin thing happen. One is... Members of the Astros encouraging Yuli and others, he's a good guy. It was just something he messed up on. He's, he's all right. And, and even encouraging him, it's all right. You're a good guy. You, you, it's okay. You're a good guy. And then on the other side of that, this ring of guilt. How much can we punish this man, whether it's booze in a stadium of thousands of people or a, a numerical fine or something else? How much can we punish him so he gets the gravity of what he did? Isn't that when we come to our sin, the twin things that we do? Don't we, when we read wretched man that I am, and notice this, this is Paul who wrote Romans. And if you maybe come from a, of a, a biblical background or maybe you come into a church and Romans is a dense theological book and there are these moments in it when Paul hits it and he goes, wretched man that I am, what is he doing? Is he being punished enough to where he sees, do you really get it, Paul? I'm going pun- to keep punishing you with the sin of you. Or does he, is, he, is he trying to just kind of give a false humility of, oh, man, I just see some, there's some things in me. No, he's brushing up against the reality of who he is. Not just what he's done, but who he is. So that he may turn and say, where can I be rescued So immediately following that, who will rescue me? Aren't we like Yuli Guriel? Isn't that so easy? I watched that and I don't excuse at all what he did. It was horrible, horrendous. And at the same time, how does the Bible deal with sin differently than what we see on just encouraging you on your goodness or beating you with your guilt? You know that this, actually this, this, phrase in Greek, wretched man that I am, it actually means someone who's being pulled in two directions. It's interesting. Martin Luther himself, the father of the Reformation, we've been celebrating 500 years, even last Sunday, was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the Wittenberg door to say there needs to be a, a difference in the way we approach our sin and grace. And you know what he said about this? He said this in Latin. Similustus et peccator, that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Pulled. And this is the position of what it means to be a Christian. Telling the good news, understanding the gospel in light of the bad. We have to walk into it. And I think this passage sets us up well. We sang a hymn and a song that actually worked it right in there. The Lord is a warrior. This actually is a passage of a battle. It shows us an enemy, that there's a war waging, and that there's a victory. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the enemy, the war that's waging, and the victory that we have against this enemy. It begins with the enemy right there, right out of the gate, verse 18. And he's actually, this is a repetition in verse chapter 7. It's an actual repetition of Paul raging against this sin in him, this thing he sees. He says, right I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that it, that is in my sinful nature. Now, 
right off the bat, many of you may squirm and go, okay, well, is, is that a little extreme? I mean, maybe you're, you're, you're coming into church again, or maybe you're visiting and you say, no, this is exactly what I feel like churches always say. The pastor's going to rail on us and say we're just horrible people. Is that really what he's doing? I don't think the Bible's getting to that. He's not saying that we can't do relative good. He's not addressing that. He's looking internally at his nature and his very core being and seeing things that are corrupted. He's seeing every part of him is corrupted. He's looking at this. He's not, he's not saying that, and, and even Paul himself in another place in the Bible where he lists all the good things that he's done, he doesn't throw them away as if they're that bad. He does say, though, in light of those things, all my good things can't save me. They can't just make me good. It's not just about his doing good things that can address the corruption he sees. There was a National Geographic article I read called Why Do We Sin? This is interesting. It was a brief look at the neuroscience behind bad behavior. And they started saying this. You've probably heard the expression, the devil made me do it. And it sounds like an excuse, right? After all, when you do something that you're not supposed to do, whether it's eating too much, envying someone else's success, or flirting levaciously uh, at <coughs> a co-worker's spouse at the office party, you're the one who ultimately makes the choice to do the wrong. Now, an interesting thing, at the end of this article, what I thought was quite humorous, is after they kind of viewed sin as, and they literally say this, it is in you. It's not just the devil made me do it. They're looking at, like, the neuroscience behind it. Listen to their last word. A word of caution, colon. Don't use these explanations of the brain mechanisms and evolutionary role of sins serve as a license to do bad things. Remember that despite your brain's wiring, it's what you do in response to sinful urges that ultimately matters. They're essentially saying, hey, we could do all this research, but it's still in you. Thanks? It, 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 I don't know where all you are theologically, but it is a part of us. Uh, many may define this problem biologically, psychoanalytically, but it is a part of all of it. Yes, I would say. Sin is psychoanalytic. Yes. It's biological. Yes, it's all a part of us. It, there's not a point where it has not touched. It's interesting. Some theologians even say the word nature here when he says, in my sinful nature, that the word nature actually means a habitual course of evil. That it's not necessarily, and that's even what the Greek is talking about. It's not a language of you just do bad things. It's a course. It's the fact that our our whole inner being is wanting to go down this path of evil, a habitual course of evil, and it compels us. And where does it come from? Jesus had this discussion in Mark chapter 7 with a bunch of people who were saying, are we unclean outside or inside? Where is it? Pretty, pretty rational discussion. And they were saying, well, what we put in us is really what makes us unclean. Now, does, isn't that what we typically think when we approach things like Lent, right? I need to figure out what are the unclean things I'm putting in my body that I can give up for Lent, right? But the actuality of those things like Lent and other things are trying to say, no, no, no. And Jesus in Mark 7 is saying, it's not what you put in that is unclean. It is what's coming out. It's saying that there's something coming out of you. What you put in doesn't create lust or murder. What you put in doesn't create gossip. 
There's a rooted problem of evil. St. Augustine, who is a, a, a incredible theologian, probably my favorite book, he, one of my fa- top five books as a Christian that I've ever read is his book called Confessions. St. Augustine was uh, from 354 to 425 AD, and he wrote this book essentially expressing, it's like the first autobiography really ever written of that length, of that magnitude. And he expresses his sin, and he talks about it in this way, that he says when he was younger, he wanted to steal pears, and that he had this desire to steal. And he was really kind of looking in. This is kind of long before, obviously, C.S. Lewis and all these other people who looked into kind of the nature of our sin. He extrapolates. He says, my nature was I wanted to steal pears with my friends. So I hopped over my neighbor's fence, I stole all these pears, and we went over. And after stealing them, I realized I didn't really care for the pears at all. He actually says, I didn't even eat them. It was the force of the, the desire to steal within him, that, that, that need of that is what satisfied. That was what he really wanted, more than the pears. And it is something so deep in us. How corrupt are we? Like he says, it's in my nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I want to do. This I keep on doing. You see this tug of war, this corruption in him. And how far are we corrupted? Isn't that the the next question? How far has sin really gone? uh, One theologian, uh, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way. He said, as salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does every atom of our nature. In other words, think of it this way. <clears throat> if I was to take a glass of water up here and I began to, to drop little drops of ink in it, right? There might be <clears throat> able to see the water. It may not be as dark as it could be, but there's not any part of that water that is not touched by the ink that's dropped in it. It is not that we are absolutely depraved. When we talk about Total depravity. There's language from, from historians and theologians that say we are totally depraved. Total depravity doesn't mean we're absolutely depraved. In other words, we aren't maybe as simple as we could be. That glass is not as dark as it could be. And yet we are totally depraved in that every molecule of us is touched by sin. There is not a part of you where sin has not reached and is not a part. Any time you take a sip of that water, you're thinking, I'm drinking it. And that is us. That is our heart. That is the reality of who we are. And the cross shows us this. I have to say this to you. I have been bathing in this this week. As a, as a preacher, you think, okay, maybe you talk about sin a lot. A lot of people don't like to hang out with me because they think they're all, you know, if I hang out with a preacher, then I have to think about my sin. Well, I'm not walking around hanging out with you going, hey, how have you sinned this week? But you know what it is that, that I find that people may miss, and maybe you've missed this before. Maybe you think church is just all about how it's black and white. We just say, you're really bad, and you need to, you need to go to Jesus. You know what it's really about? If, unless you understand your sin, you won't be a soft person. I find the people that watch Yuli Guriel on TV and either fall in one camp of wanting to punish him to death or to just try to encourage him into goodness is what I typically want to do, but the Bible says it's neither of those. You can't do that. 
if you really understand what sin is and what it, it, the bad news is in light of the good, you can't be motivated by guilt or by your goodness. Sin actually should soften you to see yourself for who you really are. Instead of trying to punish yourself or everyone around you, why is it, and I'm gonna say this, I hope there's many of you in this room that may not know Jesus or maybe be kind of like, uh, I don't know if what I think about this stuff. But why is it when we approach people who may not follow Christ that we somehow forget that we are sinners? I am Yuli Guriel. You are Yuli Guriel. It is not a matter of him, oh, he just made a bad choice. We all have that in us. Are we willing to admit that? And note what we need, because I'll tell you what, the next line he goes into is that there's a battle. He said, it's not just about this, this, it's not just this stagnant thing in you. He says, so I find this law at work, verse 21, although I want to do evil, evil is right there with me, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within me, waging war against the law of my mind waging war. It's really interesting. The actual shift in language here to the Greek is this, and this is so fascinating to me, to make a military expedition or to take the field against. Imagine this. Sin is not something just sitting in you. It's coming alive. In fact, in other places in this chapter, he talks about that. Even at the very bottom, he talks about slave, it makes me, is alive in me, right? Sin, I mean, sin is alive in me. It's at work, Sin takes this active work in us. It moves in us. It, it even says it wants to take us prisoner. The word prisoner, it means to capture with a spear. It's this idea of a warrior with a spear coming after you. Other places in the Bible, in the New Testament, James is another letter that's written. He talks about sin in this way. He talks about this and temptation and the desire as a re very real influence. It's dragging away and luring us like an animal. I lived in Mississippi for a while. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. I'm not a big hunter, uh, but when I lived in Mississippi, uh, I hunted everything. I, I learned how to do frog gigging, and I, yes, I did eat the frogs. Uh, I, I went squirrel hunting, boar hunting, deer hunting, like everything. And it was just so fun. I was talking about this with somebody yesterday and uh, just the differences. And we were saying, yeah, certain types of hunting are fun. And you may have your preference. But, I, but the one thing I remember hunting was turkeys. And it was fascinating because turkey hunting is unlike anything else. There are some hunting where you sit in a deer blind and you wait for the deer and you try and bring them in and you wait for them. You're, you're pretty stagnant. There are other ones where dove hunting or maybe even duck hunting sometimes, you move around a lot more. Turkey hunting, it's both. You're trying to call the turkey in, but you're also trying to come after it in this this push and pull, tugging, this strange relationship of trying to get these turkeys. This is what the Bible is saying about your sin. It's saying that your sin is, is constantly trying to get you, to pull you into itself. It's not stagnant. It's not waiting. It's constantly moving in those aspects of your personality, of your world, your life, your heart. Even Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, when sin first enters into the picture, there's this relationship to sin. 
In Genesis 4, 7, it says right after um, sin entered the picture with Adam and Eve, their children, Cain was angry with God, it says. And he wanted, to, he wanted to hurt his brother Abel. He wanted to kill him. And God says this line to him. Listen, Genesis 4 He says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The word desire, the crouching, is rabas. It actually means to make a layer at the door. It means sin actually makes a layer. It makes its home. It tries to find places to live at the door of your life so that you will let it in. I had a friend when I was uh, in college, and uh, when we graduated, she moved to Chicago, and uh, when I went to visit, uh, I realized she was working for the Lincoln Park Zoo. Some of you may have visited there before. It was really cool because I was able to go and <clears throat> get kind of this behind-the-scenes tour of the zoo. And, and, and this is not exaggeration. She was letting me and my friend uh, walk around in places that you, you, no one would. People were kind of looking at us through the glass, like the seal area where the seals would come up, and you know, there's a tank below, and you could see them where they would pop up, she let us walk out onto the rocks, like in the middle of the tank, where the seals' heads would pop up right around us and look at us like, are you feeding us or what, you know? It was crazy. And we would get to go behind where they would actually feed the animals and take care of them, and she was just showing me all these things. And I remember this uh, getting to one of the doors as we were kind of looking behind the scenes, and her opening it up, And there, right in front of me, was a cheetah. Literally, and the door wasn't, and thankfully there was glass between. I don't know if it would have worked. But this was the door they used to actually feed the animals. Now, I don't know if you've seen a cheetah in real life. Cheetahs are not small. Sitting, it was this tall. And this thing looked at me. I was literally as far from the pulpit as it. And began to snarl in such a way that... I was utterly afraid. And I, even though I knew there was some sort of door there, I knew this is the door they feed them, and this animal thinks I'm coming to be its food. I mean, it's, it's not like, I don't have anything in my hands, man. This thing is wanting me. That is the exact picture of Rabas, making the layer at the door. Sin is not stagnant. It wants to devour you. It wants to have you. It is a war that we are at, waging war. Sin does not, and my pastor told me this some time ago, and I loved how he said this. Let's look at this for a moment. Let's look at how sin actually affects our our lives. He said, sin does not respect your intelligence or ability any more than a tiger respects a Harvard degree. And I remember him saying that and thinking, Okay, that's a great line, but I have seen that more in my life, and I know many of you have. There are so many things that you see in your sin, and you think you can use your skills and ability to either cover it up or move past it, or know enough education to get around it. Sin does not respect intelligence or ability. It wages war through those things. Sin doesn't respect your badness or goodness. It uses both. I am of the the mindset how easy it is for me to try and balance my sin out with successes or things that I find in my goodness immediately. Let's see this trajectory for you. 
What is it like for you when you encounter actual sin in your life? Not just maybe something that you, you encounter that, that you cut somebody off. Or you, did so, you wronged somebody in a, in, a, in a way. But something that you continually see. Maybe those things or more. Like Yuli Guriel, do we find ourselves pursuing, hey, tell me I'm good, somebody affirm me? Do we move towards affirmation to try and outweigh that thing? Maybe you're cheating coworkers. Maybe you're a boss and you're demeaning people who work for you. And you find yourself, because things are going well in business or going well in home or well wherever it may be, that you don't need to deal with your sin. Sin is not stagnant. It is at the door ready to devour you. Many of us in this room may use our personalities to dismiss our sin. Do you find yourself, well, I'm just kind of a, I'm just kind of a melancholy kind of person. Or I'm just kind of a happy person. I don't really want to dwell on that. Maybe singing these songs this morning, you come in here, maybe your personality, it's hard for you to grasp. Let me tell you, though, that it is so easy, the particular weavings, the particular parts of you, the war is happening. It is waging. It's waging within you. And there's not an ounce or a place of your personality that is not woven in with sin. The ink You may not see it, but it is there attached to every molecule. It is a part of you. So much so that it is easy for us to see our sin and address it by either going to despair or diminishing it. Do you do those things? Do you diminish it? Wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You know, there's a, a group called the Puritans that saw verses like this and they called it mortification. They said mortification is where you actually see the reality of the cross when Jesus says, take up the cross and come follow me and it is a war. It is an all-out war. In fact, John Owen, one of the greatest Puritans of all, said this, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. That mortification is us taking it seriously. Listen to what John Owen said. He said, we cannot go forward unless we recognize the plague of our own hearts. We need to be intimately acquainted with the ways, wiles, and methods, advantages, and occasions which give lusts its success. And lust doesn't just mean lust in our terms. He means our heart's desire to sin in any way. Are we acquainted with that? And are we willing to be a, what, what is called a cruciform community? You want to really know what would transform not only your definition of what sin is in your own small circles, but transform our city to see what it really means to trust in Jesus? For you to be a soft, humble person? A cruciform community of love means cruciform. What does that mean? That you're forming into the, the form of the cross. That what you see hanging above me in this cross is not just decoration, it's a reality that sin is real, but yet it's been dealt with. That we don't have an an heir, that we got everything figured out. But we have a humble idea that we are waging war with sin 
within us, that we are attacking it, and that we aren't doing it on our own. It's not just character defects, and you say, I gotta work on that. It's the, fa- <laughs> it's the fact that God is at work within us, is that here's the difference, and, he, and I was just having this conversation this week with someone who, who is not necessarily a Christian, and we were talking about the difference that I see in us. I said, yes. Do Christians struggle with the same things that people who may not be followers of Jesus struggle with? Absolutely. That's where we go wrong as Christians. Paul is not saying that at all. But what he is saying is where we go from there. Do we move to goodness or do we move to guilt or do we move from our goodness and guilt to Jesus? Wretched man that I am, what is he brushing up against? The reality of who he is in his sin and looking skyward for help. There's a line, I don't know, I don't, not sure if it's true, but I loved it in the movie, so I'll quote it. It's from Walk the Line, that movie about Johnny Cash. And I like that the whole movie kind of surrounds at the beginning of him singing in the Folsom prison. He's dressed in black. He even has songs. I love his songs about why he dresses in black. But one of the record company executives says to him, in the movie at least, your fans are church folk, Johnny. They're Christians. They don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. And Johnny Cash says this line back beautifully. Well, they're not Christians then. Who do we think we are? Paul, the apostle, is saying, wretched man that I am, because he identifies who he really is. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't go, I just need to be better about this. He goes, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. You know what this table is? It's our victory. We know who the enemy is, and we know if we have any sort of experience of any seeing the things we see in us, to identify our enemy as sin and to identify it as a waging war within us, where's the victory? You see it right here. The victory is not yours. It's, It's the Lord is a warrior, mighty in battle. And you know what's different about this warrior of any others? is that what he does to our sin is he goes to die for it. This warrior actually dies for our sin, the proof that our sin is real. Our condition, you need to understand this, our condition was so bad, so in dire need, so destitute that the only single way that God could save us wasn't by cheering us up, wasn't by saying, I'm gonna punish you until you really pay. He punished someone else. Blood and body, Jesus Christ. Need I say more? Victory is yours. If you can put your trust, this is an invitation to you, this whole passage. Because right after this last verse is the first verse in Romans 8, which we preached this summer, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you could say, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I, 
I know there's a war within me. And put your trust in the one who can know the victory. Come to this table and every one of you, wretched woman and man that I am. But thanks be to God. This is your table. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I don't know if I can really adhere to that. I understand that there's a lot of sin in me, but to trust in someone else and put my faith in him as kind of my, my warrior, my representative of taking sin, I would encourage you to either stay in your seat and continue contemplating that or come forward, fold your hands, and receive prayer. Don't come take this table thinking that you can take this body and blood making it your own body and blood. This is somebody else's. Let's be... Really take it for yourself in terms of praying over that. But come to this table in humility and in prayer and in Jesus only. Let's stand together as we read our liturgy.